Well, first off, I just want to thank you all for a very warm welcome. Uh, so many of you all have just welcomed me with open arms this morning, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm also grateful for many of you all and just the kind compliments that you've had. Uh, I've heard from several people who said, hey, we watch you online, and uh, when we weren't gathering live, we watch you online, and we've caught you at Spring Branch as well. And one of the things that we really love about your preaching and teaching is you take like stuff that's up here and you bring it down here and you know, may really bring the cookies down on the bottom shelf. And uh, I don't know how to tell you all this, but I'm trying to preach as high as I can. So I think I've missed my mark here. Um, I've had the opportunity to get to know a player in the NBA who over the next few years will amass a fortune around $500 million through endorsements and through his salary in the NBA. He will amass a fortune of about $500 million. That's half a billion dollars. Not through some lottery, not through something, but just as a basketball player. I also have gotten to know one of the other chaplains uh, for the Rockets, and he works at Inner City Christian School. And in his lifetime of serving faithfully in this school, he will probably amass one one-thousandth of that, maybe about $500,000 in his lifetime. But I want to say this, though. I believe that that friend of mine, that other chaplain who works in this inner city Christian school will have 1,000 times the impact of this NBA player because teachers have an impact. They have a direct impact with students and with parents. Quick show of hands. Are there any teachers or coaches here today? Teachers or coaches? Amen. Thank you all uh, for serving. Let me pray for y'all. We're going to pray for them. Uh, God, we're so grateful for our teachers that are here today and coaches and administrators. God, as they come up uh, towards the end of a school year, I know many of them are just uh, seeing the finish line. So I pray that they would finish strong, give them a second wind, uh, just uh, energy and strength, God, and just fruit of the Spirit as well as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. God, we pray now as we study your word, God, I pray that you would be our teacher, you'd be our preacher. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, along with that, how many of you all, just by a show of hands, can say that you have been impacted by a teacher or coach, maybe elementary school, junior high, high school, even college professor, been impacted by a teacher? And so again, like I mentioned to you all, if God has called you to teaching, that's a noble call, that's a high call, because you make an impact in the lives of students, not just while they're there, but even into their future as well. But here's what I want to say today is based on the Great Commission being a command, a commission that's given to every single one of us who has placed our faith in Jesus Christ, all of us in here have been called to be a teacher. All of us in here who have placed our faith in Jesus as part of the Great Commission of making disciples of all the nations, of all the ethnicities, we are also called to be teachers. We're going to find that in Matthew 28, verse 20. Matthew 28, verse 20, so turn with me there. To Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, but we're going to focus especially on verse 20 today as we wrap up this series called Mission. And the name or the title of this message is What Does Your Life Revolve Around? What Does Your Life Revolve Around? And again, since I'm a cookies on the bottom shelf kind of preacher, uh, the first point is simply this is teaching them because Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, he says, teaching them to observe or follow or obey. All that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you, or behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. So point number one is simply that. It's the first two words of this participle in the Greek, teaching them, teaching them. That's point number one, teaching them. So part of making disciples is going. Part of disciple making is baptizing. And the other part is now teaching. 
And the Greek word there for them is the Greek word autos, autos. And that word autos means this, anybody other than you. To put it very simply, that's what the word them means. It's anybody other than you. And yet we will take great amounts of time in Bible study, listening to the podcast, studying the word of God to teach ourselves, which is important. I'm not negating that. But here, if we're going to make disciples, he says teaching them. So my first question, my first application is this. Who have them in your life that you are teaching? Who are the them? And if you do not have them, would you begin to pray, God, send me a them that I can now what you have taught me, what others have taught me, I can now teach them. That word teaching, here's a definition. Teaching means this, causing the learner to learn. That's what teaching means, causing the learner to learn. In the Greek, the root word for uh, didomai or didasko, which we get the English word didactic, didactic teaching, is the word dao, D-A-O, which means to learn. So really at the center of teaching is not you giving some kind of prepared lesson, not you giving some Bible study, but you causing the learner to learn. Because the disciple, if you remember this, is a committed student, a committed learner who follows a teacher, and that teacher being Jesus Christ. So you, as a disciple maker, teach them with the focus on helping them to learn, not with a focus of impressing people with your theological knowledge, impressing people with all the Bible knowledge you have, but the goal is that the them will learn Scripture and learn to apply it. We're going to look at that more further. So first of all, he says teaching them. There are five contexts that Jesus teaches in. So it's not just like this teacher, classroom, and sitting in theater style. There are five different modes, and I want you to write these down. The first one is this from Scripture is teachable moments, teachable moments. Jesus had teachable moments. And this is seen in Mary and Martha. When Mary and Martha are there, Jesus is with them. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is busy preparing the meal. And in this time of preparing a meal, Jesus gives them a lesson. He gives them a lesson, a teachable moment. For us as parents, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, we all have teachable moments. As you drive your kids to school, as they wake up, that's a teachable moment. So find those teachable moments. And I found this as a parent of two kids, that my greatest teachable moments came on the drive from home to practice for volleyball or drive to school. So don't let your kids just put their earbuds in or AirPods in or play on their phones. Find those teachable moments when you're driving them back from school, back to home, and you say, how was your day? What's something that God showed you today while you're at school? Find those teachable moments. The second one is this, is the classroom. And I know there's been seen, there has seemed to have been an emphasis on this in many churches where we have Sunday school and sermons like this. But Jesus did that as well. He would teach. He would teach as well. The people would stand and then he would stand and usually he was on the shore or some hillside and he would begin to teach in a classroom setting. The second one is this, uh, third one, I'm sorry, third one is small groups, is small groups. And we're going to look at John 13 here in a second. In John 13 through 17, we know this passage as the upper room discourse was not given to the masses and to the thousands. He spent the Passover Seder dinner, that time with his disciples and began to teach. And then in uh, number four is an even smaller group. So Peter, James, and John at his transfiguration were there. And at his transfiguration, he taught them. And then finally, number five, in the temple and synagogue. So Jesus taught in the temple and the synagogue. And this is what I would say, teaching 
in a, what I would call, a spiritual context. So that would look like maybe a community group or on Sunday morning or even a conference. He would teach in those settings as well. And so us as teachers, as disciple makers, we have to tailor the teaching context, the environment, to those who are making disciples out of. Are you all with me? I'm, I'm going to say this. I, I need some kind of response, all right? <laughs> I, I, just need, I just need a little bit. I just need a little bit. I, I jokingly say, the less you respond, the longer the sermon's going to be, all right? <laughs> so if y'all want to get to Luby's by like noon, like you, you got to say amen, all right? So those are the five different contexts that Jesus taught it. And for us as disciple makers, teaching them, we focus on the them, that they would be learners that learn, and we tailor it to them. So again, it can be the car ride from home to practice. It can be if you're discipling somebody at your work. Hey, you know what? On Thursdays, I'm going to start taking you out to lunch, or we're going to have lunch on me. We'll spend that hour, and I just want to go through this book together, Kingdom Man, or maybe a book on discipleship. I want to go through it together because I know we're both busy with work and family, so you have to find that environment to teach. And notice this in John 13. Turn to John 13. John 13. We're going to look at the first part of this upper room discourse in which Jesus taught his 12 disciples In John 13, he tells us in verses 1 through 4 that they're in the upper room enjoying Passover. And then verses 5 through 11, there's that section where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And here's one thing to learn as well as a teacher is you have to meet people where they are. You have to contextualize your teaching. So in those days, if you would go to a house as a guest for dinner, before you would enter the house... If that household had a servant, that servant would come and as you took off your feet, because the roads there were very dirty and dusty, they would wash your feet. The household servant, the butler or the maid would come and wash your feet. Are you all with me? If you did not have a butler or maid or servant, generally in that context, the kids would go and wash the feet of the guests. So kids, if you think you have it rough in your house, at least you all ain't washing nobody's stanky fate, right? He, they would wash their feet. And this is what Jesus does. He has the disciples. They're about to enjoy the Passover Seder meal, this dinner, as his guest. He is the teacher. He is the Lord. He is the king. What does he do as an object lesson? He washes their feet. Not the servant, not the butler, not the maid. The, the king, the Lord, God in the flesh, washes their feet as an object lesson. Now imagine this. Imagine for those of you who work at ExxonMobil or maybe in the school district, imagine if you got an email tomorrow from the CEO of ExxonMobil or maybe you get an email from the district superintendent saying, hey, let's, let's serve one another. Let's begin to serve one another. Let's begin to serve our employees. Let's begin to serve our customers and clients, serve our parents and students. Let's begin to do that. Delete. But imagine... The same scenario now, the, 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 the faculty in the school, all the employees are called. And there is your call to this lavish meal that is sponsored by the school district or by ExxonMobil. You're there, and as you enter, the CEO of ExxonMobil says to you, hey, would you take your shoes off? And what are you doing? And he begins to wash your stinky, sweaty feet. He's the one serving the meal. He brings the meal to your table. 
The superintendent is the one serving you and washing your feet and doing things for you, serving you. The one who's the shot caller, the one who's the big baller is now serving you. Would you need an email from that superintendent or CEO saying, let's serve one another? No, because you've seen it demonstrated. Are you all with me? And that's what Jesus does. And that's why he says this in verse 12, John 13, 12. Then when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are correct, for so I am. So if I, the Lord, and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So in humility, serve one another. For I gave you an example so that you also would do just what I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you knew these things, you are blessed if you do them. So again, he did not say, if you know them. He said, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus, object lesson. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to serve you food. I'm going to do this for you. Lord and teacher, you the student, I'm going to do it for you. And now he says to them and to us, go and do likewise. And again, he uses the context of the day. They understood. You come to a guest, somebody's house, they wash your feet. They have a servant wash your feet because they're serving you. Jesus humbly serves his disciples, and he's calling all of us in here to serve as well. Um, and this is a, a, the thing that, that I, I struggle with is um, I'm a Gen Xer, and they call us a sideline generation because we watch the baby boomers and the millennials fight and argue. We see it in the workplace. We see it in ministry. I'm just sitting on the sidelines watching the boomers complain about the millennials and millennials complain about the boomers. I'm just watching it. Here's this thing, though, you all. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says to Timothy, the things you've seen and heard in me, entrust these to faithful pe people so that they will now be able to teach others. It's a picture of a relay race. He says, what I've gotten and now hand it off to you, you have to hand, on to some, hand off to somebody else. And parents, I'm going to admonish you right here as a fellow parent. The reason why we see a breakdown in the generations after the boomers who were active in church, who loved the Lord, who served the Lord, who gave, is because the handoff has not been made. And so if I can encourage you and admonish you as a lead pastor of Spring Branch and as a fellow elder, that I would beg you to hand it off. In college, I was a track athlete. I ran Division II track at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and I ran the 400 and the 200, and this was the dreaded sound that nobody liked to hear. When we were practicing the relay or doing the relay in a track meet, we had an aluminum baton, a very light aluminum baton, and every now and then you'd hear the ka-tink, 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 which meant somebody dropped the baton. And you all, the reason why we see numbers of millennials and Gen Z now walking away from the Lord, perhaps is this, is the baton has been dropped. Perhaps we have not contextualized the teachings of Jesus into a language that they understand with a focus on the learner, not the teacher, but on the learner. I just finished teaching a class to pastors from all around the United States. Uh, we had Dr. Tony Evans' Kingdom Leaders Summit was a teacher there, and I taught on sermon illustrations, how to use analogies and metaphors and illustrations to teach the Word of God. And I said to them, you have to put it in the context of the learner. You can't just break open your commentary and your systematic theology of Chafer and Hodge and just begin to spout off. You have to put it into an ability for them to learn it. And so one thing I love is this. Two weeks ago, our kids' ministry all across at Cypress and Spring Branch here at Tomball, they taught the kids that you cannot see God. God is invisible, 
but you can experience God. You know God exists even though you can't see him because you can experience him. You can see God at work. Amen? And this is what Eric did. Eric Frisbee did this. What a great object illustration. He says he turns a fan on. And he says, can you feel the wind or the breeze? And they said, I can feel the wind or breeze. And then he asked this question, but can you see the wind? Can't see the wind, but you can feel it and you know it's there. Then he turned on a heat lamp and he said, now put your hand under the heat lamp. And he says, can you see the warm air? And they said, we can't see the warm air. But he said, can you feel the heat? Do you feel your hand warming up? And they said, we feel it warming up. Then he had a little music box and he pushed play. And he says, can you see the sound waves? And they said, we can't see the sound waves, but you can hear the music. So this was the object lesson. He says, you cannot see God, but you know he's there because you can experience him. Amen? And I thought, what a great object lesson. And so parents, one of the things you can do when you leave here today is as you talk to your children, what did you learn? You can continue to emphasize those things that they learned and then practically apply them. Jesus did it this way. He said this. He says, come unto me in Matthew 11. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, we say that, and I don't know about you. I was not raised on a ranch or a farm. I don't know what he's talking about. But his audience, they grew up on a farm. They would understand that you would yoke oxen. You would take a junior oxen, a new oxen, and yoke it up to a senior, a stronger oxen. And he says, that's the picture here. Jesus says, he says, if you are that weak, frail, tired, broke down oxen, you don't know how you're going to make it. He says, yoke up to me. I don't understand what he's talking about, but this is what I understand. He says that if he were living today and preaching and teaching today, he probably would say it this way. He says, if your life is like your car, broke down, he would say, hitch up, and hitch up to me and I will tow you. So when I go left, you go left. When I go right, you go right because you have... Hitch yourself up to me like your bass boat or your broke down car. You have hitched yourself up to me. And so again, the first point is this, teaching them. The focus is on the them, causing the learner to learn. That's what the word didache means, didasco. The root word is dao. You have to focus on the learner, teaching them. So my question, you all, is this, is who is the them in your life that you're teaching? And if you are a parent, my prayer is this, that first off, it is your kids. It's not Eric's job. It's not the youth pastor's job. It is your job to teach them. Secondly is this, and again, I'm a very simple preacher, teaching them to observe, teaching them to observe. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, he says, teaching them to observe, not teaching them to know. Don't just go to Bible study. Don't just do the Bible study and learn it and memorize scripture. He says, teaching them to observe. My translation uh, says to follow or to obey. Teaching them to observe. And that word there is a very interesting word, the word observe. It's the Greek word tereo. And it, 71 times it's used in the New Testament, and it means to guard, observe, or to keep. And the 40 times it's used out of the 71 times, it means to keep or obey God's word. Look at John 14. Go over one chapter, John 14. We'll see this very same word. John 14, 15. John 14, 15. He says this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep, you will tereo my commandments. He said the way that our love for our Savior and our King is seen is not how loud you sing on Sunday. Not how high you raise your arms on Sunday, but how you obey him and follow him Monday through Sunday. 
So it says, if you love me, you keep my commands. Look at verse 21. He says, the one who has my commandments and keeps them. There's that word again. Tereo guards them as the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and reveal myself to him. So he says this. It's not a test of salvation. It's a test of intimacy. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And as you keep my commandments as a demonstration of your love for me, what you're going to experience is more my love. Not saying God does not love you. God loves us unconditionally, but you will experience intimacy with God. And I don't, I don't know about you all, but you know what I could use more of? I could use more of not more money, not more time, not more like whatever. I can use more of him, intimacy with him. And he says the way we get there is when we say, because you loved us first, we love you. And because we love you, we will obey your commands. He says this in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, some think it was Thaddeus, the disciples, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will follow my word and my father will love him and we will come to, uh, come to him and make our dwelling with him. It's again, a thing of intimacy. The one who does not love me does not follow my words and the word which you, uh, you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So let me just give you this. As a former athlete and as a coach, I know the temptation is to discipline yourself and just do it. That's not what he's saying here. What we need to be doing with those, the them that we're teaching, the them that we're discipling, is that they would grow in their love for Jesus Christ. They would grow in their love for Jesus Christ, and an outpouring of that love would be obedience that their lives would be centered on the word of God. And that's why the title of the sermon is, What Does Your Life Revolve Around? And my hope is that a disciple is a committed student who says, my life revolves around obeying, keeping, and doing the word of God. My life revolves around serving and loving Jesus. That's what my life revolves around. Yes, I have a role at ExxonMobil. Yes, I teach in the school district. Yes, I work at Shell. Yes, I do this. But I'm also, my life revolves around that. I'm not recommending this movie, but I, I, I love like trilogies and stuff. So if you've seen the Has Fallen trilogy, Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, you know about this guy, Mike Banning. Mike Banning is a Secret Service agent. And as a Secret Service agent, he has one assignment. He has one purpose, and it is to guard the president and the president's family. Are you all with me? Again, it's rated R, so this is not a kid-friendly movie, and it's not a Christian movie. Um, but in this movie, Mike Banning's sole purpose is to guard the president and his family so his life revolves around guarding the president. And what a picture of our lives as disciples, that our lives should revolve around keeping God's word. So just like when the president goes left, when the president goes jogging, Mike Banning goes jogging. When the president gets in the limousine, Mike Banning gets in the limousine. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor, we love our neighbor. When Jesus says, love your enemies, we love our enemies because our lives revolve around keeping the word of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 in the Old Testament, this isn't just a New Testament thing. God says, hey, I'm about to lay before you blessings and curses as you enter the promised land. And he said, the way that you experience my blessings is obedience, faithful obedience. Why were they put into, the, uh, into exile? Is because of their disobedience. They were not faithful to God. And God warned them. God said, if you're faithful and you obey me, You'll enjoy blessings in the promised land. If you disobey me, you're unfaithful, 
You'll be exiled into Babylon. Let me just share this very funny story. Uh, whenever I say the word exile, it reminds me of this. I was preaching many years ago on exile, how the Jews were exiled into Babylon because of their disobedience. And uh, a grandmother and her granddaughter were at the church. So this uh, couple in our church, their grandson and granddaughter came to church with them. They happened to be in the congregation that Sunday listening to me preach. At lunch, they said to their grandkids, hey, what did you learn today uh, from the message when Pastor Icky was speaking? And this little girl, she was like seven, eight years old, said, Pastor Icky talked about the Jews going grocery shopping. <laughs> and so, so the grandmother said, grocery shopping? He never talked about any kind of grocery shopping. And she said, yeah, he talked about them going into the exile where they buy eggs. And she's like, dear, no, he wasn't talking about buying eggs and butter. Like he was talking about like leaving your homeland and going to another land. That's exile. Anyway, John, uh, in Deuteronomy eleven twenty eight, he says, careful to obey. In Hebrews chapter eleven six, 6, we know this passage. He says, faith pleases God. The writer of Hebrews says that faith pleases God. And he commends all these people, all these folks in the Old Testament for their faith. And here's the thing. Why did God commend them? He didn't just say, here's this amorphous concept known as faith or trust in God. It was because their faith in God was demonstrated by what? Their obedience. God sees our obedience. When God says, when God says, do it, and we say we believe God, we trust God, and we do it, faith pleases God. God sees our obedience. So this isn't just, again, a New Testament gospel concept. This is something both in the epistles and in the Old Testament that we should teach them to obey, to observe, that their lives would revolve around obeying the word of God. Uh, and then finally is this, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded them. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded them. So what does he want us to obey or observe? All that Jesus has commanded us. Not your opinions, not what the media says, not what's popular with the culture, not public opinion, not a political opinion. He wants you and I to teach the them with a focus on them, the learner. He says he wants us to teach them all that Jesus has commanded us. Now I'll say this, are you saying that we only command only the red letters? If you have a New Testament in the Gospels, the words of Jesus are in the red. Are you saying that we only teach them the red letters in the Bible? I would say no. Where do I get that from? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired. Really the word there is expired from the mouth of God and is proper teaching, reproof, correction, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then what does he say in chapter 4, verse 1? Therefore, preach, herald, proclaim the word of God. Teach the word. He says, teach the word. So he just said, scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. Now here's the thing. When Paul wrote 2 Timothy, we did not have the gospels compiled yet. We did not have all the epistles compiled yet. He's referring to Genesis, to Malachi, the Old Testament. That's what he's referring to. And obviously now, we know it refers to everything from Genesis to Revelation. He's saying every bit of scripture 
even the parts you don't understand or even disagree with, he says, is inspired from the Word of God. So if you ever want to hear God speak, you simply need to read and study the Word of God. And he says, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, teach, preach, herald, proclaim the logos, the Word. Now you're saying, well, isn't he talking about this thing that we have in our hands, the Bible? That's the Word, right? Well, if you remember John chapter 1, verse 1, and John 1, 14, the Word became flesh. And so he's saying, teach and preach Jesus. The hero, the center of the Bible is not you and I. Contrary to what all these uh, popular preachers may say, the, the center, the focus of the Bible, the hero of the Bible is Jesus. And that's who we teach all that Jesus commanded them. Now here's the unusual word about the word command. The word command, literally the root is end in, end in, like end, like the end of a story. End in. You can flip that. It means this, that we follow Jesus' commands because his commands have the end in mind. Jesus commands us not just randomly, hey, love your enemies. Hey, you know, pray without ceasing. He doesn't just command us randomly. What he's doing is he's commanding us with an end in mind, with a goal in mind. And this is the goal, y'all. Paul says it this way, is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ in Romans 8. That we would become more like Jesus Christ in our character and our conduct. And that's why he has these commands. And so as we are discipling people and we're teaching them all that Jesus commanded us, the goal is not they would learn the Bible and one day if they're doing Bible Jeopardy or some kind of contest, they'd win it. The end is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, would become more like Jesus Christ. Uh, anybody in here ever had a, have a house built ever? Any ever a house built? I'm going to give you a tip. If you're building a house or having a house built, your best friend should be the contractor, the guy who basically is over the entire project. You want to make him your best friend because they're going to handle any problems you have. They're going to handle the speed and the timing and all the stuff that's done. You want to make sure they're a good friend of yours. And so I remember when I was meeting our contractor, we bought a house in West Spring Branch. And that day, I wore a Trinity University shirt. That's where my daughter goes. That's where my wife is right now, picking up our daughter from Trinity University. And I walked in to meet the contractor. And he sees my shirt, and he says, hey, did you go to Trinity? And I'm like, no, my daughter goes there. He's like, I'm alum. And when he found out my daughter went to Trinity, he and I became like best friends. And so Dale does this. Dale was our contractor. He was over the entire process of building our house and so this is what Dale does. He's got the blueprints. He's got all the spec sheets. And so every day he's giving out commands to the plumbers, the drywall guys, the sheetrock guys, the framers. He's giving out commands to the carpet people who are laying the carpet and the tile. He's giving commands, not just random commands like put the tile here, put the carpet here, put the pipes here. Not random commands. He's giving commands with an end in mind. And the end is a completed house. Are you all with me? And that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, the commands I give you, Genesis to Revelation, the totality of scriptures is, again, not just head knowledge, because we have made that into maturity. Maturity is not knowing more. Maturity is becoming more like Christ. And he says, that's the end in mind. That's the goal in mind. Imagine this. Imagine, imagine, imagine this. Uh, tomorrow you're at work, 
And all of a sudden, the computer screen in front of you starts to get kind of fuzzy, kind of blurry. So you go to your ophthalmologist, and the ophthalmologist says, oh, I have something to share with you. Um, you've got a really rare eye disease, rare eye disease, and you're going to eventually go completely blind. And you're like, oh, taking it back. And say, you ask this, is there anything I can do? And they said, yes, there's this really, really difficult, tricky surgery that we can do that will correct it. You'll have 20-20 vision. And so you're like, okay, I, I want to do it. I want to do it. And so you go to your ophthalmologist and you say, uh, so when can we schedule this operation on my eyes and stuff? And then the guy says, well, be careful. Your doctor says, be careful, though, because there is a risk. Because if we do this wrong, the blindness may come instantly. So, you, so you're saying successful surgery, I'll see 2020, have no other problems. But the risk is I may go blind as soon as I leave the operating table. And, 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 you say, and they say yes. The doctor says yes. Here's a question I would ask. Before they anesthetize me, before they put me under the knife with the lasers and the scalpel and all that, I'm going to ask this ophthalmologist, hey, um, how many of these surgeries have you done? And the ophthalmologist says, well, you know, I, I did go to Texas A&M, and I did go to this medical school, and I graduated tops in my class. I've done so much research on the eye, and I've written on journals about the eye. And you're like, that's all great. I, I understand that you're a scholar in the field, and you know a lot about the human eye, and you've researched it, and you can tell me all the parts of the eye. But my question is, are you doing it? That's what I want to know. Are you doing this stuff? Before I put my eyes under your care, under your surgery, I want to know this. How many of these surgeries have you done? Not how much do you know, how much have you done? And at this point, he says, well, this will be my first time. I'm like, time out, I'll see you later. I'm going to go to that guy who flunked out of undergrad, who went to that flunky medical school, who's done hundreds of thousands of these surgeries successfully. Because he may not know as much as you, but he's doing a whole lot more than you. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, teaching them to observe, not know all that I've commanded you. Are they becoming more Christ-like? Are you and I becoming more Christ-like? Are we teaching and preaching, transferring the life of Jesus into others? That's what he wants to know, so that they become more Christ-like. Not know a lot more, a lot more about the Bible, not know all these verses, not know theology, but are they becoming more like Jesus? I want to give you two resources um, up here. So one is this. There's a book called Discipleship Essentials by Greg Ogden. It's, I think, 24 chapters. So if you go every other week, you can take somebody through it in about a year. Greg Ogden's written a book called Discipleship Essentials. How do you pray? How do you study your Bible? Give me some basics on how to grow as a Christian. So if you say, hey, no one's ever discipled me, maybe I've gotten a little bit of Sunday school or community groups and all that, but I know I need to teach my kids, I need to teach my coworkers who are interested, this is a great tool that you can use. The other one is The Five Male Theologian by Rick Cornish. So if people already know how to pray and maybe know how to say their Bible and other things like that, this is a great tool to use as well. It's got 104 chapters, so it takes about two years to go chapter to chapter. So all the young men I've had the grace, privilege of discipling, we've gone through Rick Cornish's book. And we usually start with a chapter, discuss it, apply it, and then usually uh, the conversation goes elsewhere, whether it's about parenting or dating or marriage or relationships or being a man of integrity or struggling with various things on the Internet, whatever it is. So this is a great tool. Uh, these, great, these two tools are a great place to start if you say, you know what, 
God has called me to be a teacher because I'm a disciple maker and this is something that I need to do. Um, here's a promise that God gives us uh, at the very end there. He says, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Here's something that we find throughout scripture. Whenever God gives us a command or a commission that's greater than ourselves, that would cause anxiety, fear, or worry, this is what God does. God always attaches that commission with his promised presence. Here's how he does it. He says this in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, which means this, whatever you see, earth, whatever you don't see, Heaven, spiritual, everything physical and spiritual, Jesus Christ has authority over that. So basically he's saying, I got this, I got this. And he says, therefore, go make disciples. Because Jesus, our king, our president, our savior, has all authority, he says, now go make disciples. But at the very end, he says, I've given you that commission. And then he says, going, baptizing, and teaching. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have spiritual and physical opposition it's going to cause anxiety and fear in you. And because of that, not only does Jesus say, I got this, he also says, I got you. Come on, y'all. I don't know about you all, but man, I want to know Jesus got me. The fact that when I get up to preach, whenever I'm discipling people, whether here or overseas, whether the crowds of thousands or a group of two or three people, that Jesus is with me. I want to know that. Because I can't do it on my own. I get riddled with anxiety and fear. And so what God has done throughout biblical history is he's always promised his presence to his people. In Genesis 15, when Abraham is told to leave the Ur Chaldees and go to a land that God is going to show him, God says that I will be your shield. I'm going to be with you because I know leaving your comfort of your home and leaving everything you know is difficult and challenging and will cause anxiety and worry. He says, don't worry, Abraham. I'll be your shield. I'll be with you. In Genesis chapter 28, to Jacob, as Jacob is leaving as well, God says to Jacob, I've given you this thing and this commission, and it's going to cause fear, but he says, I will be with you. What a great preposition to be with you. In Genesis, uh, sorry, Genesis 26, he says to Isaac, I'll be with you. In Genesis 28, as he gives Jacob this commission, he says, I'll be with you. In Exodus 33, as the Israelites and Moses are about to enter the promised land in the wilderness wanderings, God says to them, I'm going to be with you. In Judges chapter 4, as the Canaanites are about to attack, God says to Deborah and to Barak, I will be with you. You have nothing to be afraid of. In 1 Chronicles 28, as Solomon is now undertaking this building a temple, a house for God, David, his father, King David says to King Solomon, he says, I know this task of building God a temple is going to be daunting. It's going to cause you fear and anxiety. But don't worry. Don't be afraid because God is going to be with you. In 2 Chronicles 32, as Assyrians are about to attack Judah, God says to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, don't be worried. Don't be afraid because I will be with you. In Haggai, he says to the remnant Jews who are about to rebuild the temple and restore worship, I know you've had adversity and challenges, but don't be afraid because he says, I will be with you. In Hebrews 13, he's talking to believers like us who've suffered persecution. They've lost their jobs. They've suffered loss in wages. They've experienced financial hardship because of their identification with Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus says, hey, don't worry. I'll provide for you. And what else does he say? He says also, and I will be with you. 
And then this famous psalm, Psalm 23, that many of us have gotten comfort from. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And so every commission that God gives is impossible to do in and of ourselves, no matter how gifted we are. And because of that, he has to reassure us with his presence. Um, I was a church planner, and uh, I got no income from the church, so I began working full-time as a personal trainer. And as I began to work in this gym, on a regular basis, the manager of our gym would give me a commission, a task to do. And he would tell me this simple thing. He'd say, Icky, when you're not training clients, I just want you to go around and ask the members to re-rack their weights. If you've ever been a part of our g- a gym, you know that, that people will lift, they leave their dumbbells in their place just sitting on the, on the floor. And so he said, I want you, here's a commission, to go and tell the members of this gym, the people working out, to please re-rack your weights. Now here I am, 190 pounds, talking to grown men, 220, 230, 250 pounds. And so I'm going like, um, excuse me, can you... Um, can you re-rack your weights, right? And they just grunt to me. And I'm like, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'll put them back, right? Because my manager, my boss had given me a mission, a commission, a purpose, a task, saying, hey, I want you to tell people to re-rack their weights. But here I was in a land of giants, a daunting task, 190 pounds, and telling these men, 220, 230, 240 pounds, muscle-bound men, to please re-rack your weights, and I was afraid. But here's what happened. I looked at the gym as a place for me to make disciples. And so I met a young man by the name of Mo, and I began to disciple Mo. And Mo was trained to be on the world's strongest man. He was 240, 250 pounds. Now you're saying, that's not very big, 240, 250 pounds? He was only about 5'7". 5'7", 240, 250 pounds of just solid muscle. He was one of those guys that his arms would bow out because his lats were so big. He wasn't trying to do it. That's just how big he was. He actually slept in a recliner. He says, Icky, I can't sleep in a traditional bed. My chest muscles are so big that when I sleep, it constricts my airways. So I have to sleep in a recliner because my muscles are so big. And so this is what Mo told me. He's a firefighter now in the San Antonio area. I disciple Mo, and Mo said this to me, Icky, Anytime I'm in the gym and you're working, you don't need to be afraid because I got you. I got you. I got your back. You don't need to be afraid because I got you. And here's the thing about Mo. Mo was that guy when he began to lift weights, everyone in the gym would stop working out and they would all look at him. He was bench pressing like 500 pounds on the incline press. He said, everyone just stopped and they're looking at me. He was deadlifting a ton of weight. He's uh, shoulder pressing 315 pounds. Everyone stopped. And look at him. They knew he was the king of the jungle. He was the lion. And so he said this, anytime I'm in here, you don't need to be afraid because I got you. So you know what happened? All of a sudden I had courage that came from nowhere. I just had this courage and tenacity now. And I remember going around the gym like, hey, can you re-rack your weights? Yeah, you, the ugly one. Your mom's ugly too. And is that your girlfriend? Man, she's ugly as well. Like, just re-rack your weights. Come on, step to it. What are you waiting for? Because now I had someone greater who said, I got you. 
I got your back. Whenever I'm in your presence, you don't need to be afraid. And that's what Jesus Christ does to wrap up the Great Commission. He says, you know what? Making disciples of all nations across the street and across the seas is impossible for you to do. It's going to cause anxiety and fear and worry. He says, now going, baptizing, and teaching, that's also going to do that. But you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to say, well, I have the words to say. Well, I know what to do. He says, because I got you. I got you. You can handle this with love and courage because I got you. So as we wrap up this series, my call is the call of Jesus. That you and I would teach them to obey, observe. Their life would revolve around obeying the words of Jesus. That's what Jesus called us to do as disciple makers. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful that whenever you've given a commission throughout biblical history to your people, the Jews and to the church, even to those in Hebrews 13, I believe 35, who suffered financial loss, who've lost jobs because of their identification with Jesus, who are now thinking about going back and turning their backs on Jesus. You tell us not to love money, not to seek it. You're gonna meet our needs. And then you tell us, and you will be with us. Your presence is there with us. So God, I pray for each and every person under the sound of my voice and those watching online. God, I do pray that we would sense your presence, your promised presence with us. God, as we now undertake teaching them, the learner, others, to have their lives revolve around obeying your commands, your commands which point us to and lead us to becoming more like Jesus, our King and our Savior. So God, would you give us the love and the courage, and as they used to say, the unction to teach and observe all that Jesus commanded us. And we ask it in his name, and all God's people said.